Sin is the destructive way you handle your pain. And that really, to me, made it came home, made a lot of sense, especially for anybody that's an alcoholic or an addict or anybody that's an Al-Anon or anything else. Sin is the destructive way we handle our pain. So when, when people hurt us, if we feel shamed, if we feel guilted, whatever we're feeling, we can respond in different ways. But if we respond destructively, that's sin. We look at the topic of sin today on In the Shadow of the Cross. In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I'm here with my friends Jim Durkin. Good evening. And Michael Harden. And it is evening here, too. <laughs> oh, yes, that's what happens when you go from three time zones. That's true. Different times a day. Um, so today we're talking about a dreaded topic. We're talking about sin. I thought this would be an appropriate topic because, you know, I've noticed something interesting. I can be in the most uh, delightful conversation with, with believers that I would even think of as free thinkers and free people. And it seems like whenever the topic of sin comes up, <laughs> all of a sudden the conversation takes like this heavy turn and it, and no matter which way you go, it's like all of a sudden it's like the air gets sucked out of the room and everybody kind of starts to grapple with what is sin. And then all of a sudden the laws kind of start coming down. Like, where's the fence? Where's the rules? How do we, how do we function? And all of a sudden a conversation that can be so freeing suddenly turns into a very, um, legalistic conversation and i'm talking about with free people i'm not even just talking about like with legalistic people because it's like the battle to find where's where's the boundaries and and all of that stuff and then we've all sat through numerous sermons of you know against sin and um it seems like so much whenever that topic comes up it it seems like it becomes about behavior management and things along that line so that's why we wanted to dive into this topic tonight, and I'm really eager to hear your guys' thoughts on this because I'm actually here tonight much more as a student, uh, just to learn and and grow in this because the experiences I just shared are very much a part of my reality in the world that I'm in. So I, I want to hear uh, what you guys have to contribute to it. So um, I'm just going to throw it right out there to you guys. Uh, Jim and Michael, take it away. I'm going to let you start, Michael. <laughs> All right. Well, I have a lot to say on this topic. I'm 65 years old. I've sinned a lot, so let's recount them. Okay, no. So, so when we we're going to talk about sin, we what we have to ask is okay. So the first thing was what is sin? Okay, fair enough. Where do we take our definition from? Now, there is one writer in the New Testament that is going to use the word uh, hamartia, sin, 63 times. And that's the Apostle Paul. Okay? Um, sin in the Gospels is another thing altogether. Um, because sin in the Gospels in Jesus' Judaism 
is equated with debt. It's a debt owed to God. Okay? And it's a debt owed to the other person as well. If I sin against you, I sin against God. And in Jesus' teaching, by the way, notice this. There is no such thing as a sin against God in Jesus' teaching. There's only sin we do to one another. Okay? Yep, go check that out. The only the only text one could argue otherwise on is that there is this sin against the Holy Spirit. But other than that, in for Jesus, Jesus breaks with the definition of sin in his Judaism. I mean, he uses elements of it, but he breaks from it. But for Paul, and that's where we in the West and Protestant Christianity take our diff definition from, sin is used 63 times. Now, here's the kicker on this. 58 of those times are in the singular. And that's important. Because when we talk about sin, we tend to talk about the things we do that are that we, quote, believe or taught or think are wrong. Actions that are wrong, actions that are immoral, actions that are illegal, actions that are, again, okay? <clears throat> actions against transcendent categories. Okay? You with me so far on this? Yeah. Now, Paul takes the word sin and turns it into a transcendent category by putting it in the singular. For Paul, sin is a principality and a power. Okay, this is okay. very, very important. So I think if we're going to start somewhere, we're going to want to start with that simple linguistic element that sin is that which we are enslaved to, and it is the master of a way of thinking and thus relating. Now, this is important. In Romans 7, the kind of the key text here on sin, Paul says, I would not have known what sin was unless I knew what the law was. And for Paul, the law is also a principality and power. What dies at the cross? The devil, death, sin, and the law all die. All are X'd out at the cross. And this is this is enormous. This is Paul's way of thinking. And if we aren't going to start there, all we're going to do is end up where Christians end up going, well, I don't know if that counts as a sin. You know, should I ask forgiveness? How many Hail Marys and Our Fathers are doing? How much penance should I do? How much should I beat myself up over it? You know, bup, 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 bup. Because they are starting off with standard virtue vice lists of Western morality. And here's the other thing, second thing. Where does the law come from? If the law comes from God, well... We'd best pay attention to what God thinks is morally right and morally wrong. But what if? What if Torah does not come from God? And this is also Paul's perspective. For Paul has to take down the category of Torah. And the way he does this is to say, look, Torah was mediated by angelic powers. Okay? So 
in order to take down sin, you also have to take down law, because the definitions of law and sin are so entwined. Why? Western culture and Roman jurisprudence, friends, here we go, go all the way back to Tertullian in the early church, who was the one that introduced the way we really do think about sin today. It was Tertullian that said, there are three categories to deal with the problem of sin. Contrition, you have to have a contrite heart. Confession, you have to confess your sin. And satisfaction, you have to pay for your sin. And since that time in the late second century, that's where we've been locked into. It's a combination of Jewish Torah and Roman jurisprudence. And then it gets played out in only the powers that be. You notice it's only the powers that be that get to determine what sin. You notice that? It's yeah. never the regular people. It's those on top. There's my initial thoughts. Wow. There is so much here to unpack. That, that, wow. Um, where to start? First of all, Jim, do you have anything you want to add to that? Add to? No. <laughs> How can you add to perfection? No. Oh. <laughs> oh. I think we should have one of those plays down now. <laughs> I do have some uh, thoughts that I want to interject uh, uh, into our conversation here in a little bit, but let's let's stay on this subject for just a little bit. Uh, Lauren, I know there's some thoughts that you had, uh, questions that you had, and maybe I'll have some in a minute. Um, yeah, um, first of all, is I'm, I'm connecting dots here. So I find it funny how in, in, in my opening I talked about how whenever we start talking about sin, um, it turns into a discussion about law. It ends up becoming this legalistic thing. And then you were talking, Michael, about the things that are nailed to the cross, um, which include, or what died at the cross, which included sin and the law. And so it's interesting because it's like when we start trying to define what sin is and we go in that direction, all of a sudden we're trying to cast out the disease with the disease. That's exactly right. It's no wonder the air gets sucked out of the room. Because it's you're you're going completely down the wrong path. The right. other thing is when you started talking about Paul's view about the law and who brought the law, all of a sudden my mind went back to the seminar Steve Crosby did on Galatians. And mm -hmm. then you you hit on the exact point that went in my head was, oh yeah, Paul was because in their time the uh, the Second Temple Jews really believed that the law came from angels. Um, and it, it and if I remember right, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. Doesn't it say that in Galatians that it was? Yeah, well, received? It, it's not that Second Temple Jews would have affirmed that view. It's that that view can be found in some components of Second Temple Judaism, and Paul uses it. Okay, so so the point is, that. it's it's actually there. It's actually in the yeah. scriptures, right? In Galatians so, chapter three. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, Galatians chapter three, and and so three if, four, if, if three or four, I don't have. I, I can look at it. If you carry on, I'm going to look up. Okay. The so, but just for the sake of anybody who's thinking this is something that's just being pulled out of right field, no, it's it's one of those things that's been skimmed over. All that you know, I've read Galatians tons of times, and until Steve in a seminar pointed that out, I'd never realized that was there. So that's that's another um, thing to set on the side, and then and then as we're talking about. Um, 
uh, about the law being nailed to the cross, I know people who maybe haven't listened to previous episodes, we did mention um, about the law being, you know, people say, oh, but Jesus said in, in Matthew that not one jot or tittle of the law will be passed away until all is fulfilled. And Jim, I know you addressed this a couple weeks ago. Would you mind hitting on that again about the law being fulfilled? I, I was just trying to take a, a quickly look it up there, but I believe it's in, uh, Michael, help me, is it Colossians, where it says the handwriting of requirements against us yeah, was nailed uh, that to the is uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses um, 13 through 15. Exactly. And for, for years, uh, when you'd talk to people and ask uh, what was nailed to the cross, besides Jesus, but what was nailed to the cross, and well, my sin. And... One day I decided to uh, uh, proof text that <laughs> because that's what we all believe. Well, our sin was nailed to the cross, right? And in reading Colossians, especially chapter 2, uh, we get a, a whole different picture of what, what happened on the cross than, than what uh, it, we've been preaching in evangelical circles. Yeah, um, you think? <laughs> the the uh, statement Michael made earlier of um, you know Satan being utterly defeated in the cross, you know, stripped, disarmed, whatever. Uh, but the law, the handwriting requirements against us, the Bible says it was nailed to the cross. Yes, and. Other places, and Michael uh, uh, referred to that too, without the law, we don't know sin. So if you take the law out of, of, of the equation, you also are taking sin out of the equation. That's right. And That's right. Um, I, I think, once again, we, we, we've shared this in several different uh, uh, ways on different episodes, but whatever our paradigm is, that's all we're allowed to see, or that's all our mind will let us see when we're reading the Bible. We can read whole chapters that say exactly the opposite, or at least change our paradigm, have the potential to change our paradigm. Um, but because... What we believe, what we've been taught, what we think is absolutely biblical, we'll read right over that and get nothing out of it. Uh, we'll read it absent-mindedly, and then all of a sudden we come to one scripture, or in some cases half of a scripture, <laughs> half of a verse, and all of a sudden it's like, there it is, right there, there's the proof, exactly what I always believed. And we jump on that, on those, uh, you know. And um, so in reading Colossians several years ago, it was a, a real eye-opener to me that, no, uh, no, 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 no. All this stuff has been taken out of uh, context, number one. Number two, put it in context. And it isn't uh, what a lot of us have said in the past, 
I read the back of the book and we win. It's like we won a long time ago. <laughs> I love that. It, that reminds me of a yeah. friend of mine was sitting at a, a gathering where it was uh, people from all different denominations and backgrounds and stuff. And uh, a person, one person was a charismatic at the table and the other one was an Eastern Orthodox. Uh, they call them priests or fathers. I, I don't remember the exact Priest. term. Priests. And, uh, and the, uh, the charismatic pastor turns to the Eastern Orthodox guy and goes, um, so when did you get saved? And the Eastern Orthodox <laughs> priest pauses, thinks about it, and then he goes, about 2,000 years ago? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll, yeah. That'll mess with your theology a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, there is so much more to unpack on this topic of sin just because we've been so trained in um, just a, a false paradigm surrounding it. So let, let's let's come to your point and to Jim's point, put them together. <clears throat> you said we've been trained. Jim talked about a method. The method is, is essentially free association. What I do is I take my strongs and my thayers, and I look up the word sin, and I look at all the occurrences of sin, and I lump them all together. That's mistake number one. Big mistake. Writers, uh, particularly apostolic writers. Okay, I'm going to back up. The point of the New Testament is to teach us how to interpret and read the Old Testament. That's the point of it. Okay? The apostolic church is coming from two very different places. It's coming from a place on the one hand in Jerusalem Christianity where the law is part of Jewish life, faith, and thought, and so is the gospel. We are Jews who are also Christians. So we still follow Torah, but we also understand Jesus is our Messianic Savior. Okay, now, you have another type of Christianity for whom the law plays no role. Gentile Christianity. And we know that the biggest issue in the early church that came up over and over and over and over and over again was the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles because of that dividing wall that said, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to follow us and be a Christian, if you're going to follow Jesus as Messiah King, you Gentiles need to get circumcised, have kosher tables, and keep the Sabbath at a minimum. Okay? Yeah. But we can't talk about sin without talking about the law. It's impossible. But we can't talk about the sin and the law without talking about the cross. Because the New Testament gives us a radical perspective on this business of the law from two sides. On the one side is the Jewish Christian side, like Matthew's community, who in the late 80s, early 90s, is if we situate Matthew, say, in Antioch on the Orontes River, that is in what is now Syria, okay, north, north of Israel, okay, uh, where Paul and Peter clashed, right? Mm -hmm. We yeah. situate Matthew's gospel there, the Didache is from that area, um, uh, so are the letters of Ignatius, the bishop in, in the, the late teens of the first century, we are looking at a type of Jewish Christianity that is just shortly removed from the destruction of the temple. Now, the destruction of the temple is huge. It's, 
It's bigger than the 9-11. It's bigger than the Hiroshima bomb dropping on the ancient on ancient Judaism. It is it is it is the end of their it would be as if somebody were to uh, instantly vanish all the Bibles from the world. Bam, gone. Right? Wow. Now what do we do? What do we do? Okay. So it's that big an event, okay? In Matthew's community, Judaism is being reconfigured, and it has been since the late 70s, early 80s, by Rabbi, Rabbi Yohan ben Zakkai down in southern Israel, down in Yavne or Jamnia. And he's gathering together the rabbis, and they're forming a school, and they're going, okay, we don't have a temple, so what does it mean to be a Jew? Okay, and they're free. This is where Judaism begins <clears throat> its rethinking of itself. So because Second Temple Judaism is now gone. It's gone. You with me on this? Yeah. I mean, the only there is a small portion of literature that's written during Second Temple Judaism. The majority of it's written after the destruction of the temple. So we we there's so many things historically to, to, to keep in play here, but the primary one I'm trying to point I'm trying to make is that you have these two streams in the New Testament, Matthew's community is having to say, we're the true Jew. Now, Judaism knows about Paul. It knows about Paul and Christianity. Paul has his, his haters within Judaism, because there are those that see Paul as throwing out the Torah. They think he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and they want to retain the Torah and obedience to the Torah. For everyone, Jew and Gentile. Now, Matthew's community is having to, to assert its self identity as true Judaism. Okay, this is, yes, it's Messianic Judaism, but it's true Judaism over against the synagogues there who are saying, no, we don't need Jesus as an interpreter. We don't need the Christians as interpreters. We have our rabbinic, our rabbis, our emerging rabbis, or we have our previous tradition. All of this history comes into play when we are reading our New Testament. And if we miss this, all we're going to do, and all we've done, really all we've done, is turn Christianity into another religion. And that's where we introduce into the Christian theological sphere those very elements that Christ crucified. Wow. I I'm trying to wrap my head around where to go because <laughs> that's that's really heavy because I'm realizing how ignorant I've been um, especially on the historical side that that's really interesting because that's true that after the temple uh, Judaism would have to be rethinking itself it does. and so they would they would have to have somewhere to go because when you put it in that frame of what a massive event that would be I mean we don't even comprehend your your culture has been completely destroyed and and you're having to rebuild from that point. So so are they rebuilding? How are they rebuilding after okay, that? First, they're not rebuilding. Okay. Okay. Uh, physically, physically, they're not going to rebuild the temple. The remnants of the temple, there is a small amount of evidence. Victor Epstein produced an essay some 60, 70 years ago. Small amount of evidence that there were sacrifices that would kind of continue to sort of be offered in the temple there, uh, in what was left of the ruins. Okay. But in 120, Hadrian's going to come, I'm sorry, in 135, Hadrian's going to come in uh, after the big revolt of Bar Kokhba 
um, and just raised Jerusalem to the ground. And that's when one stone isn't left on another. Okay. Okay. So the temple is in the city of Jerusalem are taken down quite a bit in eight, in the 70 CE war, but they are raised to the ground uh, under Hadrian. To your question now, your question, Lauren, was... So how are they... Well, and, and, I guess... So, so what they're going to do is they're yeah. going to reconstitute. So let's say the Bibles of the world disappear, and you and Jim and I are sitting here, we're going, oh, crap. What, what do we do now? What does it mean to be a Christian? Where's our... Where's our apostolic tradition? What do we do? How do we rethink this thing? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We don't even have texts about him anymore, right? Right. So we would have to reconstitute the faith tradition. And that's what Judaism does. So when they reconstitute, what do they then put the focus on? Well, it, I mean, at that time, you know, they are still trying to... Uh, Rabbi Yohan ben Zakkai... Uh, is perhaps the most interesting figure in um, in this time period. He's in fact he's he's very very important. He's the father of Judaism essentially after the Second Temple. Without him, uh, we wouldn't have a Rabbi Judah the Patriarch. You know, 130 years later, compiling the Mishnah. You know, <clears throat> we just wouldn't have Judaism as we know it without Rabbi Yohan Ben Zakkai. Um, what's really important is he was a pacifist. Oh, interesting. So Judaism could have been regrounded in pacifism. And there is a real pacifist extreme in post-Second post Temple Judaism. Very Interesting. There, there so it's not strong, but it's there. Um, uh, they're having to figure out, you know, if, we're not, if we can't sacrifice to remove our sins, what removes our sins? And this is where they start looking at Torah and, and beginning to ask, where are these other places in our Torah, our prophetic writings, our little sacred literature, where we know God forgives? When we know God forgives, when we do a kindness to each other, you know, there's a there's it's a mitzvah, it's a fulfilling of a commandment to do good, you know, um, and and so eventually you'll have these sayings in Torah: "He that saves the life of one person, it's as if he saved the whole world." You, you have Judaism beginning to rethink its value system, is what I'm saying, under Rabbi Yohan ben Sakai. And it does it without reference to, um, immediate, immediately without reference to the temple, but in 130 years, around the year 200, when our friend Tertullian was screwing things up for the church, Rabbi Judah the Patriarch compiles the rabbinic traditions and whole chunks of the Mishnah are just reminiscences of the laws that dictated the way to do sacrifices in the temple, uh, understanding that the reason we keep these laws, learn them, and memorize them is because one day God will come and there will be a temple and we got to know how to do this priestly thing. Okay, so they're so they they're holding, holding on to those. Okay, that's what I was wondering. So they were holding on to still that uh, there would be a rebuilding of the temple. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I want to go a quick bunny trail, just real quick for me as a history buff. Is the influence of that the reason why um, during um, during the Holocaust, um, when Jews were being taken away to the concentration camps and stuff, um, one of the things people marvel at is how the most of them didn't fight back. Um, right. Is that because of that pacifistic thread running through that? Um, 
You know, I would like to say yes, but I think, but I think that that anybody in a situation like that knew that they they could not fight the authorities. Gotcha. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it is amazing what it, I mean. I I spent my years in seminary doing Holocaust studies, and it is stunning. The stories you hear about the kinds of things that went on in the camps were, I mean, we didn't, we not only had, you know, the, obviously those that would um, choose to take up the sword and, and do things to help liberate Jews, but just the creativity of so many, both within and without the camps to um, use nonviolent ways to, to um, help, help Jews in general, you know, so I don't know that pacifism I, I, that would be for a Jewish scholar. And I do know, I can tell you this, after the Holocaust, Judaism has basically renounced pacifism because every male in, is, in Israel that's born in Israel, that's a male that, that goes into the military, uh, one of the last things they do is they go up and have a ceremony in what's the old fortress Masada, where the Jews, you know, uh, there were 50, 60, there were, there were under 100 of them, but they... They did kind of a Jonestown thing. They committed mass suicide up there rather than <clears throat> submit to the Romans taking over. Right. And, and so when they take these young soldiers up there now, they say, never again. In other words, we will never come to the point where we'll kill ourselves. We'll, we'll, and, and that's why even Israel's uh, kind of uh, military policy today is um, it's a, a a no. It's a zero sum game. If you try to take Israel out, they're going to take everybody down with them. And yeah, story, you know. So, so, so for modern Judaism, I think, is more or less renounced pacifism. Okay, it's very interesting. For most of its history, so I mean, <laughs> it, it's not as a, a stain on Judaism. I think Judaism held on to pacifism longer and better than the Church ever did. Oh, no, that's exactly what I was thinking, why I found that so fascinating that it started all the way back then. And then um, that's one of the threads I would see in so many World War II movies and, you know, me as a movie buff was how the frustration people would say is, why aren't we fighting back? You know, the, the Jewish characters and stuff. And yeah. um, and so I just found that very interesting. But tying well, this think, back now, did, there are some great stories about their fighting back. in the. Oh, yeah, there's there's, there's, a, there's a movie based on a, a, a true story called Defiance with oh, Daniel Defiance. Craig. Yeah. Um, but, but so taking this, let, let's tie this back into the topic of sin now. So if, if we're going, okay, sin is the law, uh, it's, it's increased through the law. And then, and then we just mentioned the Holocaust. Well, when it, we have to look at the Holocaust and go, well, sin is still around. Well, I want you to notice what we're doing. We're talking about sin in terms of structural violence, the way the New Testament does. If we were regular Christians, we'd be talking about sin the way Augustine and Freud taught us to talk about sin. They taught us to talk about sin in terms of penises and vaginas. Interesting. So if we're following Augustine and Freud, sin has to do with what's licit and what's illicit when it comes to the expression of our sexuality. And, and then go back to what you just said before that about how, how the Bible said, what the Bible said sin was. 
Well, the Bible doesn't say sin is anything. The Bible has lots of views about what sin is. No, no I mean, I, I'm, I, I can't remember the right phraseology you yeah, use. Okay. So, so, first of all, there's no such thing as a doctrine of sin, a doctrine of anything in the Bible. The Bible is a multiplicity of voices. Our task is to learn which voice is God's. Okay. Because, but don't you do that in the church. Okay. But you were you were saying I I misspoke there because I I, I couldn't remember the term used. But you were talking about um what what Freud and Augustine called sin, and then you were but before that you said um what what uh, how sin was defined in in another well, way. Paul, sin is a power. Okay, sin mm -hmm. power over us. We do not have power over it. I mean, look, every single human being on the planet experiences this as the split between what they intend and what they actually do. Mm -hmm. We can intend to do the right thing. All we want sometimes, and we still end up doing the thing which hurts another or ourselves. At one time, um, Romans, Paul says, uh, sin shall not have dominion over you. And, and when you read into that, it's talking about the very thing you're saying there, Michael, that sin is a power. It's not a uh, an action. It's not uh, certain actions. I, I, I want to take us in a, a little, little bit of a different direction, but uh, hopefully it'll all tie together. Um, and I kind of want to I kind of want to talk to evangelicals who uh, choke every time. Uh, the word sin gets mentioned. <laughs> okay. Love it. I'm going to take you to Galatians 5, and I'm going to pick up uh, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of your flesh. For the flesh sets a desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. We've talked a lot about that already. Yes. Now, the deeds of the flesh. Other translations say the manifestation of the flesh. Are evident, which is... And here's the list that always gets uh, what Michael was saying in his own way, always gets thrown around as, well, that that's sin. He says it's immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dispute, dissension, faction, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like this of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you now, that those who practice the things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes in and he begins to talk about what the fruit of the Spirit is. Now, let me develop something here. And I want to start, first of all, with that, that uh, list. The list of the taboos. The list of <laughs> sins. <laughs> He says, he doesn't, Paul doesn't call those sins. And I think this is important for us to notice. He calls them the manifestation or the outworking 
of walking in the flesh. Correct. He describes what the flesh is. We really have to go all the way back to former uh, podcast on the cross or the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus or so many other ways that this thought is introduced that God in Christ reconciled us to himself. He gave us the Holy Spirit who indwells. When I choose to focus my life on walking in the Spirit, I don't fulfill the lust of my flesh. When I choose to ignore the Spirit, I'm only left with one thing, and that's... Now, let me give a definition for the flesh. Attempting to walk as a Christian out of my own head, out of my own conviction, out of my own evangelical upbringing and training. And, well, I can do this thing. I I know five scriptures. I know what, I've read the Bible. I've been a Christian. I know how to do this. And Paul said, that's walking in the flesh. When I rely on the Spirit, the Spirit does a couple of things. One, the Spirit tells me that there is no condemnation. The law has been removed. There is no judgment hanging over either right now or future. Mm -hmm. And because Mm -hmm. I walk in the liberty of that... I don't fulfill the lust of my own flesh. When I put myself under a law, if you will, of performance, all of a sudden what I find is going on is I find that I start manifesting certain ways. It may start just with an outburst of anger. But it works all of these things that Paul is saying here All of those things work out. Then I end up in a place of condemnation. I end up in a place of afflicting my soul. I end up in a place of judging myself. And that ends up leading leading me to a sense of separation. A sense where I no longer feel the Spirit moving in me. The final thought I wanted to say on that is, I've also looked at... All of these things, and they all come in the category of a violation, if you will, to what the true spirit of love is. Mm-hmm. Walking in the spirit is walking in love towards my neighbor, towards my brother. And if I'm walking in the spirit, if I'm walking in that spirit of love, I'm not going to do any of these things. None of these things are going to manifest because... The spirit of love who lives in me is living his life through me. Okay, spot on. That is precisely Paul's argument. But then you have to ask, okay, so where did Christianity screw it up? Christianity messed it up when it failed to think the category of love through. What are the implications of love? How does love work itself out? What does love look like relationally? What does it... 
How, how does it play itself out ethically? That, that failure, that ultimate failure is, is uh, I mean, I, wh- where do I want to ascribe that to? It's kind of over a period of time in the early church. Um, uh, we shifted from talking about the love of God to the grace of God in, by, in the West, mm. you know. Mm. Um, Interesting. Uh, because essentially Augustine wanted to protect God's freedom. And, mm-hmm. and that's what, why he has his double theory of election. And God chooses who goes to heaven and hell, and it doesn't really matter. It had nothing to do with who you were. It's all arbitrary, and boom, because he's trying to protect God's freedom with the doctrine of grace. Whereas the New Testament works out the implications of, for God so loved the right. world. Right. Yeah. You know, or what does love look like? Paul gives us a list. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a... Oh, Jesus is my boyfriend. I would just want to cuddle up with him. There's none of that. None of that ooey gooey, icky, ick. You know, none of that. Love is patient. That has yep. to do with relationality and circumstances. Love is kind. Love is loyal. Love is true. Love bears all things, endures all things. I mean, this, this, is, this is oneself in relation to life and people, right? Love has expressions, it has very concrete expressions. And if the the early church was starting to think out <clears throat> the implications of what it meant that God so loved the world that God chose not to defend Himself, wow. So, in other words, our focus needs to shift from trying to identify these things as sin, and, and it seems like, like you said, it's like the the whole thing is um, we shifted to away from it being about God's love to it being here are the things you don't do, and. That's right. And so now it's, but but the focus needs to be on, here's how I love, and 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 seeking to live that way that I'm going to look for how to love you and how to love my neighbor and how to love the person next to me. And Lauren, as you know, in the classroom, we have been hammering this away for the last year and a half as we talk about what we call the ethical substructure that runs through the New Testament and the one commitment that is that you see through the entirety of Christianity, no matter what faction it is, is this commitment to nonviolence. That's wow, how yeah. love is understood very concretely, even in the political sphere. Yeah. You know, they may not have agreed on doctrines or anything, but they agreed on that. Somehow that stuck. Yeah. Wow. So so it's really um tackling this thing of sin. It's it's basically like Get off the topic of sin. When <laughs> you know? it's sin, correct. It's get off the topic of sin. Okay, so G.C. Burkhauer has this fat, fat book on sin. He's Burkhauer is a Dutch Reformed dogmatician. It was the first church dogmatics I ever read. I was like 19 years old. Big, fat book on sin. At the end of it, the end of the whole book, the upshot is, the conclusion is, sin is a mystery, not to be understood, but to be confessed. Yeah. I worked with that for a long time. Sin is a mystery not to be understood, but to be confessed. The problem was, is that if once you say that, you're, you're automatically saying, well, we just can never really know what constitutes sin. I think you can. And my colleague, Denny Moon, he was a pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, back in the 85-86, where in a conversation he said, sin is the destructive way you handle your pain. And that really, to me, made it came home, made a lot of sense, especially for anybody that's an alcoholic or an addict or anybody that's an Al-Anon or anything else. 
Sin is the destructive way we handle our pain. So wow. when, when people hurt us, if we feel shamed, if we feel guilted, whatever we're feeling, we can respond in different ways. But if we respond destructively, that's sin. Right. And I thought okay. that was a much better definition than than Burkhauer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting that even public education has tapped into a degree on this whole thing of love being better than addressing the sin thing. And and, and let me show you how they in teacher training. One of the things they do now when helping you with classroom management, they have found that it's far more successful if you see a student doing something right to to encourage them in it to say. Thank you so much for being prepared with your pen and pencil and, and ready to do the assignment rather than, Jimmy, why don't you have your pen and pencil out? Uh-huh. And, and what, what they found is that when, when you encourage them, they want to do it more. Mm-hmm. But they found the opposite happens when you say, when you scold them, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you in your on them? It, it, you're laying down a law. So now, this is me Christianizing what we just talked about, you know, that, that you're laying down a law because now you've set down a rule, you're supposed to do this. And so just as you said, now what rises up in me? I want to rebel against that. You just put a rule in place. Where on the other hand, if it's love, if it's you're, you're encouraging me, I'm going to respond to that because this is, this is a positive thing. This is something in love that you're desiring what's good for me. And so public education, now whether teachers follow that or not, it's a different matter, but, but that's actually in their teacher training now because they've picked up on that with, with classroom management. And, and just imagine even if, if in the body of Christ, if we learned, I think that's why encouragement is even listed as one of those things that we should be doing. Yes. Imagine if we live that way in the church, you know, if, if instead of here's all the do's, all the don'ts and don't do this and don't do that. And this person's wrong. Instead, it was look at what this person's doing right. Look at that person who's feeding the poor. Look at that person who's who's doing this right thing. And then and then it goes to the thing of how, Michael, you talk about how we imitate. Now, all of a sudden, this is what they found in the classroom, that when students see you praise that student for tucking their chair in under the desk, all of a sudden, the other students do the same because, oh, I want to be like him. And so if what if we pointed out the good that people are doing, you know, just even as imitators, we would start imitating the good. Oh, that guy's feeding the poor and he's getting praised. Well, I'm going to feed the poor. Until the day that the teacher fails to recognize the students that are pushing their chairs under and they start developing a resentment. That's mm-hmm. true. Okay. That's a good so, point. Uh, we got to be realistic about this. Yeah. No, that's true because that's when you get into the uh, the dependence on leadership because now mm-hmm. I'm dependent on yeah. somebody. It's not integrity anymore. It's not when nobody's watching. It's only when somebody's watching and going to praise me for it. Good right. point. And I, I think there's a, a, a point here. I want to go back into something uh, you said, Michael. Um, the description that Paul gives in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 of love. Love is patient, mm-hmm. love is kind, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. If you look at... Uh, the list in, uh, where is it, uh, Galatians, I believe. Anyhow, the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the fruit of the Spirit and the description of love, the list is very similar. Well, you you would expect that from Paul. I mean, you would uh, the expect Corinthian it. and Galatian correspondence are written near each other. So you would expect that. And I, I think, I, I, and, and the the point that I get out of that is that we're called by God to walk in the Spirit. 
Yeah. And and here here's the thing that we can do. We can make and I, I I hate using this term, but I think I have to. We can make a law out of being loving. That's true. Well, okay. Well, how how do we love in this situation? How do I love in this situation? How do I love in this situation? And all we do is replace one set of laws for another set of laws. Oh yeah. And now I'm going to go out and I'm going to prove to the world that Christians are loving people because we do these things. Right, right. Instead of love comes from the Spirit. Yeah. The other way, making rules, making laws, making uh, uh, markers that, you know, we can rise to this level and then rise to the next level, really... My understanding of that, I may be a little off on this, I don't think so, but my understanding is that's walking in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And the end result of that, even when I'm trying to be loving. Many years ago, we had a, a man in our church, and uh, I won't name the town, I certainly won't name the man, but nonetheless... Sometimes early Saturday morning, you'd hear a lawnmower in your front lawn, and he'd be out there mowing your lawn. And another day, he might be washing somebody's car, you know, in the in the you know, or whatever. Just all kinds of acts of service. And then periodically, he'd get up in front of the congregation and just tear into the congregation. All this stuff I've done for you, and you guys have never done anything for me, you know. And and. You can see how love, the actions of love, when we make rules out of it, is really walking in the flesh. Yeah, Whereas he was, walking yeah, in, he was giving with expectation of return. He was in a with expectation of return. He was doing contract relationships in a covenant community. <laughs> exactly. So walking in love is, for instance, Jesus says, "Love your neighbor." Well, who is my neighbor? And then he tells, and it's like a choke point, you know? Love your enemy. Uh, What do you mean, love my enemy? You mean the guy that's trying to kill me or the guy that's suing me, uh, you know, know, for no reason? Yes, all of the above. (laughs) So there is no law of love that can make me rise to the level that Christ calls me to rise to. I have to rely on the spirit within. Yeah. He has to do the loving through me. You're bringing something up that, that I was actually pondering yesterday. I'm, I'm working on this memorial video for this guy, you know, on those slideshows. Um, his dad recently passed away. And, and as I'm watching it, you know, looking at a man's life and suddenly there becomes that pressure of, you know, being in my early 50s now. It's like, you know, the clock's ticking and it's like, I want to leave my mark on the earth. I need to go out and be a real loving Christian and, you know, leave, you know, the legacy and all that stuff. And and it goes right into what you were talking about, Jim, where all of a sudden it's almost like I started bringing myself under the law in my thinking process. Mm-hmm. and. And what came to me was, you know what, because we, we use earthly measurements when we measure things, and the kingdom of God is without measure. And, and what kind of plopped in, in my heart as I'm working on this is what matters most is that you're smack in the middle of what the Father would have you do, and you might not see the measure of that, but 
it's it's not found in our own how do i put it because it, it's it's one of those things where i'm kind of wrestling with it right now but it's it's you you don't go out and you figure out your own path of okay i'm going to go do this this is this and just like you said jim make this law that i'm gonna go do these loving things rather it's that you're 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 led by the spirit in the sense of where god puts you whether it be in your job your neighborhood the people he put in your life and that I think that when we're living in him, we make an impact that's so, but things are so, if you will, normal that we don't see the impact that we make because something that when the flavor that he puts in you is just so natural to you, it's like you can live around the scent of roses all the time, but Lily works in a flower shop. She smells them all the time, but so an outsider comes in and they're like, oh my gosh, roses, that smells beautiful. But you're just used to that being your fragrance. So you're yes. not even aware of that. But what we do is we see somebody else, oh, I just smelled a, a, a lily, you know, or something. And, and so we go, I got to go be that. But I think what God's looking for is us to put out the scent that he's put in us. But that comes so natural. And, and it doesn't sometimes look like the the thing that that's gonna you know get all kinds of attention or something and that's why we don't measure it while we're here because the measuring is from him and the kingdom and i, I liken it to like the pebble being put in the pond uh, you know love makes its mark no matter where you are or what you're doing that that goes past your lifetime and but we don't even see how far that goes out i think there is a sense in which Maybe I don't ascribe the value or or you know what's you know to to how I'm living, but what I was hearing him saying is that I simply live out of the Christ within. I w- I walk in that oh, confidence I... that I'm doing or living in accordance with how He's guiding me, and there's a, there's a um, reference in one place that says guys you need to understand this if you just give a cup of water in my name your reward's not going to be taken from you and i think when we when we try and find our purpose our meaning or whatever uh you know we pass over the thousand opportunities to give a glass of water because we want to do something great for the kingdom. Right. And that's I good. and I think that's where we miss it. The other the other thing I you know, in, in talking about sin, I don't think we could as exhaust the subject in, in one podcast because there there's so many different definitions. At one time I remember uh, I remember uh, sharing with a group of people, I believe it's Romans 14, Paul says, whatever is not a faith is sin. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, another place is, is it's, it's not a place in Scripture, it's a definition that people like to give to the, the word sin. Well, sin is an archery term, and it means missing the mark. <laughs> okay, let's just, for the the sake of it, let's just go with that. So what is the mark? All have sinned and fallen short, missed the mark, of the glory of God. When I look at that word glory, the glory of God, you know what I come up with? 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's it's not Christ in me, Jim Durkin, is the hope of glory, and Christ in Lauren is the hope of glory. It's Christ in you, in humanity. So when I don't see the Christ within, I fall short of that glory. I actually have sinned because I have not seen the Christ in my brother. And and I, I you know, that's a definition. When I begin to look at that, I then begin to say, well, then how do the Christ in me commune with the Christ in you? That's the point of where we f- have fellowship. And um, I can't sin when I think that way. Are, yeah, we're talking about within the church, correct? Within the Christian within the Christian church. We're not just talking generically the human species, right? Do, 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 when you say the Christ in you, do you mean like every human has Christ I think when he says Christ in us is the hope of glory, I think he's talking about the what we would call the body of Christ, yes. Okay, the or the, the ecclesia. The Jews yeah. and Gentiles that are reconciled to each other. The ecclesia, yeah. Right, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, just, just wanted to confirm. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think you're right that um, that that's that's where the blinders come on. I, my mind immediately goes to the story of Saul to Paul. You know when uh, when he uh, is knocked off his horse and uh, um, Ananias, it's Ananias, right? Who meets? Um, yeah. Who he goes yes. to his house and and he greets him and he says, "Brother Paul, brother mm-hmm. Saul," and right. and how the guy who he persecuted, he immediately greets him as a brother. Um, right. You know that's that's. That's pretty mind blowing. I mean, I, I don't think even we wrap our minds completely around that. That the, the person who's killing your your friends and and you know neighbors and stuff, or, or imprisoning them, all of a sudden it's like you're 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 identifying with them as a brother, and that goes right back to what we've been talking about about the cross and the early believers, how how forgiveness was the foundation of uh, or their the dominant belief in their in in their existence. Um, so I, I find that so powerful. Um, well, it's like Lauren, the church says, or the Christians say, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. To your point, he was confused on the road to Damascus. <laughs> he was converted when the scales fell from his eyes, and those scales are precisely as you pointed out. The enemy calls him a brother. That's right. when the scales fell. Something magical happened for Paul at that point. Yep. He realized, wow, something had happened in the whole order of Paul's theological world. Yeah, and and I think that's why that's the foundation of when you see Paul in his letters understanding so much of what it is to be the church, what it Ooh. is to be the brethren, I think that's because of that experience of him Having oh, yeah. being able to see again by an encounter with a brother. Oh yeah, no mm-hmm. doubt, mm-hmm. no doubt. Well, man, this is—we've already flown through this hour again. There's um, no way. Oh, and for the lab work, <laughs> and for the lab work, <laughs> I want each of you to go out and do three mortal sins and five venial sins. Oh no! Break six of the top ten. <laughs> exactly and and tell us which ones you enjoyed the most oh wait uh, i mean uh... <laughs> all right you guys well this is like this morning <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, Augustine. <laughs> well, this has been uh, Lauren Rosser and here with Jim Durkin and Michael Harden, and we'll talk to y'all again next week. 